2: Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk. Neil deGrasse Tyson here, your personal astrophysicist. And today we're going to be talking about the science of meditation. Let me first introduce my co-host, Marsha Belsky. Not your first time with us. Welcome back, Marsha.
3: Thank you so much. So excited to be back. And I feel like our topic will be a little easier for me to understand than cryptocurrency. Oh, hopefully. that's
2: true. <laughs> that was that <laughs> last topic. <laughs> we, we wanted you to stay with every every bit of the, the quantum c- computations yes. of that. Start I, with uh, but,
3: PhD. Uh, Exactly.
2: <laughs> so you're a comedian and a musician. That's a potent combo. So uh, I, I love your work, and uh, you know, I presume this is not the last time you'll be on Star Talk. So let's in, let's introduce our our guest for the day, and that's going to be Dan Harris. Uh, many of you might recognize that name and his face. Uh, he was he's been a correspondent for ABC News like forever, and then he retired retired, and then took up meditation. I think he'd been doing it for a while, but then made it full-time. Dan, welcome to StarTalk.
4: Thank you. You're making me feel old. I was a correspondent forever. <laughs> it reminds me, I gave, okay. a spe- I gave a speech once at Syracuse University, and a lot of the kids were coming up to me and saying, I've been watching you my whole life, and <laughs> exactly. I was like, next, <laughs> next. Since I was a child.
2: Since, since the I'm Second living- oh. World War. <laughs> hmm <laughs> So Dan, just, just uh, a little bit about your career. Um, you weren't just sitting at the desk. I mean, you, you, know, you have Emmy Awards for your reporting. So what do you think of the, the Netflix documentary, Don't Look Up? What, what do you think of that?
4: <laughs> <laughs> for a minute, for a minute, I didn't hear documentary, and I because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> the media
2: is is deeply implicated in that. Yes, in that movie. Uh,
4: yeah. I have no, especially now that I'm not uh, part of the media. I'll yeah, I'll start bashing, and I won't get sensitive.
2: Yeah, because you were at the Good Morning America desk for a while, and that's I was just the kind of programming they were sort of parodying
4: there. So yes, yes they yeah, were okay. Yep, All right. I'm going to bring that here. Whatever you ask me, I'm just going to deny and make a, a joke <laughs> that gets me out of it.
2: <laughs> so, so tell me, you've got this app, uh, and even before the app, or, or tell me about this 10% happier concept that you've been engaged in, not only while you were a correspondent, but even in retirement. Yes,
4: yeah, so I'll, I'll try to give you the super quick version. It all started because I had a panic attack on national television back in 2004. You can Google that if you want to see it. Um, well, so it was live. Wow. Oh,
3: yeah, it was live. A live, live panic Yeah.
4: yeah um, it was like um, a better version of Al Capone's vault, you know, when, you, uh, <laughs> when Geraldo Rivera did that live show on primetime television and didn't find anything in Al Capone's vault. This was live, and actually something happened. I lost my mind. And um, there was an audience of 5.019 million people <sighs> on, on, on a wow. warm June morning in 2004. And the reason I had a panic attack, I found out later, is um, because I was doing some very dumb stuff in my personal life. I had spent a, a lot of time in war zones. That's not the dumb stuff. The, the war zones was part of my that was part of my reporting job. But I came home from that from those experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places, and I got depressed. And I very unwisely self medicated with recreational drugs, even though I wasn't high on on Good Morning America my doctor later explained that it wasn't my drug use w- was enough to change my brain chemistry and make it more likely for me to freak out. And so that experience kind of put me on this journey that ultimately landed me on meditation. So Marcia, as a comedian you you
2: experience exactly that same war zone thing, don't you? Yeah. <laughs>
4: yeah. And it's like I
3: definitely am relating to it though cuz I think also, yeah, I started having really bad panic attacks and I don't like, you know, Xanax and things like that. I'll only take it when I really have to. So I have tried meditation. So I'm super interested to like hear your journey for sure. Right. And if a comedian has a
2: panic attack, that's the that's 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 the end of the that's the end, right?
3: It is, it's hard too, because yeah, like I've only ever panicked on stage one time. And it was kind of weird where I was just like silent for twenty seconds and then Managed to kind of get them back, but it's mm-hmm. it's a freaky. I can't imagine doing it on live TV. It's such a freaky experience. If any, what? if you haven't had a panic attack, I mean, it literally feels like you can't breathe. It feels yeah. like you're having a heart attack, and you can't yeah. tell anything to your brain. That's like I'm not dying. Your brain is just like this is it. This is it. Wait, right, so Dan,
2: you're you're implying that had you not had these. Uh, uh, coexisting factors, you might not have gone through that episode, is that correct?
4: Yes. I mean, I did have stage fright, you know. which I made a joke in one of my books that my career up until that date represented a triumph of narcissism over fear, um, because I would like to be on television, but I had stage fright, and uh, so I was always kind of walking the line, but then you add in significant amounts of cocaine, and uh, I crossed the line to freak out zone.
3: Yeah, Coke doesn't help with anxiety. I've
2: heard
4: that. I've heard that. (laughs) Yeah. So you both have data on this,
2: (laughs) yes. So (laughs) this is all very important feeder information because when we go to our second and third segment, we'll be bringing on friend of Star Talk, Heather Berlin, who's our sort of resident uh, neuroscientist, and so all these factors will matter when we share uh, what you're telling us with her. So, so tell us now, um, who who got you started on meditation? Who, Who thought? Who figured that would work for you?
4: Well, it was multifactorial, but I think the the most important variable was my wife. Um, uh, she gave me a gift of a book by a guy, a guy named Dr. Mark Epstein, who is a psychiatrist based in New York City, where uh, we lived until recently. And um, he uh, has written a beautiful series of books about the overlap between psychology and Buddhism. And I didn't actually know much about Buddhism other than the fact that I had stolen a um Buddha statue from a local gardening store when I was in high school because <laughs> I thought it would help me with the lady. Oh, high school. And okay. My bedroom. Uh, yeah, high school. So, no, no, I think oh, because if
2: you have, if, if you have a, a Buddha on your on your windowsill, you're
4: your, your hip. Your, yeah, yeah. Your, like we your, got the well, freaking
3: British Museum over here in the eighties. <laughs> in the eighties.
4: Um, anyway, the statute of limitation on that has passed, so I, I think I can talk about it. Anyway, I didn't know anything <laughs> about Buddhism, but I read this book and and I realized that that um, there was so much in here that spoke to way the the way my mind works, the Buddha called it the monkey mind, this, this constantly active uh, leaping from one hit of pleasant experience, one promotion, one slice of cake, one latte to the next and yet never fully satisfied. And- Wait, it's the
2: monkey mind minus throwing the poop. I'm guessing. It's-
4: well, I mean, also, I don't know about your is bad
3: mind. Also, lots for anxiety as well. Cocaine yeah. and coffee. Correct.
4: No Correct. I, you're, I agree with you, Marsha. I disagree with you, Neil, because I, I don't know about your mind, but my mind's throwing a lot of poop uh, <laughs> okay. at other people. Oh yeah, and you at got myself. A it's mind? an How nice omnidirectional would that be? poop dispenser. Um, oh man. Okay, so it's it's a it's a
2: figurative poop dispenser. Yes. There you go. All right. So all right. So and that sets you on your. Of course so I'm I'm guessing here that this is a very educated guess that the uh, the meditation has uh, is all about sort of introspection as is so much of eastern philosophy so the resonance there is is
4: kind of pre uh, preordained right I mean it's it's not the inter- the word introspection is interesting because it's not introspection in the way I think we in the West might think of it, because you're not sitting there analyzing your thoughts the way you would in therapy. By the way, I'm pro-therapy. I go to therapists and et cetera, et cetera. So that's not a degradation of therapy. But this is more of a mental exercise, which I know you'll get at in your second and third segments with um, your neuroscientist friend. Yeah, Heather Berlin. Uh Yeah. I mean, Heather can talk about this, but I'll just preview it by saying that and I can describe what meditation is if you want, but it, it is essentially like a series of exercises for your brain and by extension your mind, and you can see the changes on the brain scans, and that's really compelling. So it's not navel-gazing in, in the way in which we in the West might consider it. Got it. So it it's
2: goes beyond woo-woo, right, as they say, where if you, if you have measurable data on changes in your brain scans, uh, it means you're actually doing something and it's not just talk at that point. Is that fair?
4: Yeah, I think it is fair. I mean, it's interesting. The more I've gotten into it, the the more open I am to. I, I at first I was, you know, I was raised by by academic physicians. I'm married to an academic physician. I, I I was not smart enough to to be a doctor, so I wear makeup and talk to television cameras for a living. But. I, I, the science is really what got me over the hump and allowed to it uh, allowed me to do this thing. But the more I get into it, the the more and this is probably an inhospitable place to say this. But the more open I am to things that might ha- I might have dismissed as woo woo, which now I would just consider sort of other ways of knowing things, and that we just and that we're always looking for scientific validation. But maybe you know I don't meditate now because I think it's going to change my brain. I meditate because I know. It makes me less of an asshole to myself and others. And that's really helpful.
2: Okay. That anything that reduces the assaholicness in the world is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> no matter what the foundations are. Yeah. So what let's let's go back to, to square one. What is meditation? Just give me your best sort of definition for it so that we can start
4: there. I know you've done some meditation, Marcia. Do do you remember what flavor you did?
2: For me, it's
3: it's really hard for me to meditate. And what I noticed is um The more I would try and structure it, the less likely I was to actually just sit there and be present. Like I would try and get um, tapes and things like that. So the times I've found I best meditate are after I do yoga, Mm. whenever they have the like 10 down lay down period. Those have been my most successful times, I think, because my body has exercised and I can sort of meditate at that moment. And then just truly laying in bed in the mornings. And for me, it's putting my phone in a different room and forcing myself not to like go check it for an hour. And then I can actually just sit there and think and not watch TV. And that's what I call meditating. I don't know if it actually is, but that's sort of what's helped me with my anxiety, especially over this last year to try and stay present. And I do little things like I'll tap tap my heart, tap my head and physical things like that and point to the, like, I don't know if you've done this when you have panic attacks, but you point up and you say, I see the ceiling, I see the door. You just start naming things around you to keep yourself present. So that's the kind of meditation I've done.
2: He asked you what flavor, so that sounds like vanilla.
3: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's the best vanilla. Yeah, okay. I'm entry-level meditation. Okay, so I'd so be Rocky Road yet. maybe yeah. if I... <laughs> Yeah, I want to get to mint chocolate chip level. If I
4: yeah, can. there
2: you go. There you go. Okay, so so what so what flavor uh dan are you?
4: Well, yeah, maybe I can help disambiguate the the flavors here. The, so there the word meditation is a little bit like the word sports. I mean, it describes a whole range of activities. Marcia hit on about 75 of them in her <laughs> paragraph that she just uttered there and yeah. and and that's all good. For me, I think that I usually start with a very basic form of meditation called mindfulness which is derived from Buddhism but has been thoroughly secularized and has now been studied in the labs extensively. And there are really three beginning steps for this. One is sit comfortably. You can lie down if you want, I don't, or you can put yourself in the lotus position. I don't like to do that because I'm 50 years old and not very limber. But you just kind of sit comfortably, close your eyes. That's the first step. The second step is to bring your full attention to the feeling of your, one thing, usually your breath coming in and going out. If you don't like focusing on your breath, some people find that sort of an anxiogenic and anxiety-producing thing. So you can just feel the... Your full body sitting or lying down, just picking one thing to focus on. And then the third step is as soon as you try to do this, you just try to feel your breath or feel your body sitting in a chair, your mind's gonna go bonkers. This is the monkey mind. And you'll see that you're start, you know, start planning a homicide or you're wondering, you know, when's lunch or whatever. And the whole game is just to notice when you've become distracted and to start again. And again and again. You're not trying to clear your mind. That's impossible unless you're enlightened or you've died. The whole game is just to notice when you've become distracted and start again and again and again. And the benefit is mindfulness, this kind of self-awareness that allows you to see the chaos and cacophony of your own mind without being owned by it.
2: Wow. So that's why the silence matters, because that could create an artificial distraction that is needless in your efforts to achieve your
4: goals. You know, for some people, meditate with um, music. I've never understood exactly how that works.
2: How about those tones? You know, those bells that you hear sometimes yeah. uh, that might resonate with some frequency within yourself.
4: So there's sound baths, which again, that's not something I really understand or have done much mm-hmm. of. You, the bells, often in, in the in the flavor of meditation I come from. Are, are used to start or end a session of meditation. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So, like I said, they are That's all very Pavlovian, very Pavlovian, by the way. <laughs> yes. Yes.
3: I like some of those sounds. I like some of the ohms and the, like, the bells kind of clear out your head. It feels like mouthwash in your brain, some of the frequencies. <laughs> oh, I like
2: that analogy. <laughs> yeah. But just to be clear for those who don't otherwise know, these aren't like... Dinner bells or sleigh bells—they're—they're they're tonal bells, yes. right? They're like—I
3: yes. can they're, only they're, meditate to sleigh bells. Actually, that's, my, <laughs> that's no no whale noises,
2: none of that. No, no, no. no, no I need more cowbell. I that's need more what, cowbell and Santa <laughs>
3: screaming. Yeah.
2: So you have, so you have an app called the Ten Percent Happier app. Well, I mean, the app is named for the the what you do, and you know, I'm, I. I want to be 20%. <laughs> why, why are you holding me back to, to 10%? You know, what's, what's, what's the f- thinking behind that? Or did you borrow that from the business world where they say, I want you to give 110% today. And that's, of course, mathematically not real, but spiritually, emotionally, it might mean something. So where are you coming from when you get this 10% thing going?
4: I got interested in meditation in two thousand eight or nine before it was cool. It was like the first time in my life I've ever been ahead of a trend and um well, there was the entire nineteen sixties and seventies
2: with you know the maharaji, yes, you know I mean yeah. so th- there was some meditation going on back then, just but you you were only just born see so. <laughs> <if> we- <laughs> For you to say, you're a 50 year old American saying, "I was ahead of
1: the <laughs> I started meditation."
2: <laughs> no, what you might maybe, yeah, I'll, 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 let me let me offer you a way out of what you just said. Uh, could it be that you started meditating early in the social media universe? How about that?
4: I appreciate you offering me the way out. I would say maybe I got interested in meditation before the second wave of cool happened because you're absolutely (laughs) right. It was cool in the 60s and 70s. George Harrison, then you
3: Exactly, exactly. exactly. Uh, Mm -hmm.
4: And the Maharaj, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, they were all doing it. So you're absolutely right. It was cool in the 60s and 70s. Then it went away and got kind of mocked as part of the um, uh, 60s becoming a bit of a cultural caricature. And then so I I got interested in 2008, 2009, uh, and um, a lot of my friends thought it was weird and they were making fun of me. And one day, a friend of mine at work was saying, well, what's the matter with you? Like, why are you doing this thing? And I kind of out of nowhere said, yeah, because it makes me like 10% happier. And I could see the look on her face change from scorn to mild interest. Oh, that's clever. Okay. All right. You
2: got me there. 10%? 10%? Yeah, I could, let me go with the 10%, and that's a starter package, right?
4: <laughs> exactly. And since, since now I'm stuck with math questions and jokes for my whole life, I'll just double down on that to say that it's like any good investment, the 10% compounds annually. The radical good news of meditation is that, and this is what the science is showing us, is that happiness is not a factory setting that is unalterable. It's a skill you can practice. Mm-hmm. And this practice, the benefits compound over time. And that is incredibly compelling, hence mm-hmm. 10%. And I wrote a book called 10% at uh, which I thought was going to be mildly embarrassing and go away. And then it kind of led to a podcast where I interview meditation experts and then this meditation app, which has- Well, that's guided.
2: that's a very natural arc of an active person who's trying to get the job done. So congratulations on that. When did the book come out? Almost eight years ago, uh, 2014. Okay. The Ten Percent Happier book, and okay, we can look for that and maybe link to it. So, so you have. I noticed. Um, I picked up a couple of your um, the episodes, if I call them that. Uh, you have you have a cadre of meditation experts that help the listener to the podcast get into different meditative states, right? And if, as I understand correctly, these different meditation experts are 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 slightly differently tuned relative to what. Your needs might be if you then tune in, Is that uh, 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 if you listen. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think there are there are different use cases for meditation. We have a, a lot of meditations that help you fall asleep, uh, some for first thing in the morning. Uh, there are meditations that help you boost your self-awareness, this word mindfulness that gets tossed around a lot. Another skill that meditation has been shown through a lot of research to help you with is compassion or you might just say friendliness, warmth, if you want to get grandiose about it, love even. And so that's a really compelling thing to think about as a skill. And as we look out at the, for me personally, as I look out at the world and how screwed up it is, the notion that we can boost our capacity and the capacity of other human beings to get out of their own heads and view the world empathetically through the eyes of others, that that is a skill, that's a very hopeful thing. So what's the difference
2: between knowing your own mind better and then being able to interact with other people better? So, for example, is there a meditation course, let's call it that, for comedians where they can better get in the head of their audience? (laughs) (laughs) Because they want the audience to laugh, right? And if they don't laugh, they're not connecting in the way they need. So could you, in the limit of this, from what you're describing, have a meditation app for – a meditation course – flavor for every need somebody has in society. So then you lift all boats.
4: Yes. Re- rather than just the boats of the people yes, who please.
2: have emotional inner needs to, um,
4: you know, to soften. I, I mean, if we do courses on stress, anxiety, also relationships, productivity, having more self-awareness in, in your daily life. We, we, there, there, are, there is no aspect of your life that you can't make more awesome through intentionally turning it into a practice. And that's what the app and the podcast are about. That's what
3: the hardest part is, though. You start to realize like, oh, I could fix all my own life. It is all me. And then it's like, (laughs) oh, no, so much work. You
4: know what? I I don't think you should try just to respond to you, Marsha. I don't think the goal is to try to fix, quote unquote, everything all at once. I think the goal is marginal improvement over time. Marsha, he said he's a 10% doable. guy, so don't Listen, try to ask him yeah, for a 100% solution.
3: I like instant gratification. <laughs> I don't have time for this marginal improvement over time, okay? <laughs> <laughs> give me a quick fix. Give me the cocaine. You know what?
4: <laughs> fix it now. <laughs> <laughs> fix it yesterday. I mean, you already said you didn't like Xanax. I, know, I, so I mean, you've like... taken a big tool off the table. <laughs> exactly. Right, so, Dan, let me, let me give
2: a personal story here. It's not in a story, but just I, I'm like the opposite of anxious, okay? If if I speak in, in a public setting, it is, I'm as calm as like I'm sitting in my living room and 3,000 people are just there and we're chilling in the living room. That's what it feels like to me. So I have no anxiety at all. I'm very comfortable in those settings. And I, I there are other things that I know people reach for to compensate for what they might need. I don't I have no relationship with caffeine at all. Okay, I'll have a hot chocolate once a week just because I like chocolate, not because I'm after the caffeine that's in it. So, and I can sleep like that. I I can walk away from this camera, lay down on on the carpet here, and be asleep 10 minutes later. So, I've never been problem. angrier
3: at a person in my life. This is crazy. <laughs> All of like you're just basically saying everything that's haunted your whole life doesn't really affect me, but <laughs> must be hard.
2: Right. So, so what I'm saying is, I tried a, a meditation app. You know, where it said sit down, focus on your breath. I did a lot of the stuff you were describing, and I just went to sleep. I because you know. I was, a soft voice talks begins to talk to you, <laughs> and uh, and I'm sorry, I, I just go to sleep, and so maybe I'm 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 meditation proof, okay? Because I can't. <laughs> Am I unreachable by meditation? Because I don't I, I don't know.
4: I don't believe anybody is. Let me ask you this. Let me reframe it because I love everything you just said, and I I want your mind right um, on many levels. Where in your life do you struggle?
2: So I don't think about it that way. I think about it like, okay, I'm struggling because I'm an academic, right? And so I spent my whole life. There's a book in front of me, and I don't know what's in it. I gotta study it. And so then I work through it, you slog through it, you the brush and bramble, you get a little bloody, maybe, you know, if it's a particularly difficult physics problem or something. And then you get through it on the other side. And the 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 reward is that much sweeter for having struggled to get there. So for me, a struggle is not something to bring, to bring angst within me. It, I'm attracted to it. I say, well, I don't understand that. Let me keep at it. And that, that excites me. And so I don't, so I don't, I can't think about it the way you asked me the question about it.
4: Well, uh, if we talk to everybody in your life off the record, uh, would they say there are at, Days where you have a bad day, or relationships that are fraught, um, or is there no struggle in your I life? I can
2: never be woke enough for my daughter, <laughs> my twenty-five-year-old <laughs> daughter.
3: Oh, me and my I'm dad just, fight constantly.
2: That's what I'm saying. I, I, as woke as I think I am, I, that I will never be woke that's what enough. She's so there I, for. I learn. A, you I, yeah. I, I learn a lot from her. So I, you know, we talk, and um, there's tension if I'm if i dig my heels in based on my own life experience but she's a life experience that's that that has vectors going forward not looking backwards and so i'm intrigued by that challenged by it and intrigued by it but for me every challenge is an academic challenge now with regard to relationships there's other complexities there right i'm married 33 years and the, you know the big secret of marriage is that marriage is work all right because it, in fairy tales you know where do, where do all the fairy tales end they end at the marriage right so the, it's advice yes, for the courtship yes. but they yes. don't tell you what to do after you get yeah. married. they just they lived happily ever ever really really you know give me give me some stories on the other side of that of that trench all right so so um so i don't know i think uh, uh, sure you know talk you can talk to my relatives and they'll say well he does this and he does that and he does that but you're telling me that meditation is much more for yourself and what you need and what you want. And so, so that's an interesting... Uh, Wait, can uh, I
3: have a pitch? Can I say a pitch? Go for it. To me, it sounds like you said you tackle everything like an academic challenge, but what the challenge of meditation is, correct me if I'm wrong, is like you have to see your own brain as something that's worthy of study and something that's worthy of growth and understanding. And so you're like, I don't have the typical struggles with somebody else, but meditation might be helpful for you to understand how your own mind works even yes. more. Yes.
2: Yes. All right, Dan, if that's if if Marsha's correct,
4: she is so Okay. Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So
4: But she is for you. I mean, everybody's got to have their way in. I think she astutely uh, identified one way in. for For a mind like yours that is really interested in science, really interested in the details, figuring things out, Buddhism and meditation, I think, would have an enormous amount to offer you because the mind is massively complex and fascinating and, in many ways, lawful. And you can get interested in what makes it work. So you're, you're suggesting, because that's not how you began.
2: You began by saying, <laughs> I had this problem, that, that problem, that problem, and yes. meditation solved yes. it. And yes. if you have problems in your life, medication... Yes. Uh, Medication's <laughs> med- <laughs> meditation, <laughs> <fine. laughs> Medication works too. Uh, meditation can help you overcome them, um, yes. master yes. them, and the like. If you have no such litany of problems, and you're not on any kind of prescription drugs, you're now saying... That I'm not challenging you. I'm just asking you. You're now saying that the meditation can enhance whatever it is you're doing well, and maybe even do it better.
4: Is They've that, shown that, yeah. I think many things are true simultaneously. Just as when we talk about astrophysics, where I know nothing, but you can talk about one way in with meditation, which is I think the most common way in, which is suffering. People, yeah, ha- most of with us stress, suffer from
3: anxiety. Neil,
4: yeah, but for for you, sorry, Neil, for you, I think that there's a there's a I I think it's phenomenal the the the. There's an enormous amount of wisdom I hear coming through in your description of your own mind state, and that's amazing. I don't think you have to meditate. I'm not a meditation fundamentalist. I think for uh, you, the, the meditation the trick, evangelical,
2: yeah. evangelical fundamentalist <laughs> meditator.
4: The, the trick, the interesting door for you might be just intellectual interest, because there's so the mind is so vast and is so interesting, and I think there would be a lot there for you to play with. And I just want to respond to one last thing, which is you said, meditation is all about your own mind. But what we know about the universe is that the line between self and other is porous and blurry. And you can't, if you look, close your eyes and look for the self, for some little homunculus of Marsha or Neil or Dan in the mind, you cannot find it. We can't find the seat of consciousness in the brain. And so th- we are interdependent with other people and with the universe writ large and so meditation so the modern work for that mind. in physics
2: would be we are entangled yes Ooh.
4: yes, yes. We it's are. not so woo woo because of entanglement <laughs> yeah. working on your own mind is working for the greater good the same you you, you can okay. do both at the same time can't that, connect I, with others
3: so you connect with yourself eh? I have
4: no rebuttal to that <laughs> perspective
2: uh, very good uh, well, Desmond, delight to have you. And just congratulations on trying to, having improved yourself and now attempting to improve others because at the end of the day, the world is better off for people like you having lived in it. So, thank you.
3: Imagine thank you. New York if we weren't all just walking around having panic attacks all the time. It'd be a different <laughs>
4: world. It'd be a different world. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. It's okay, great, it's great to meet you and thank I'm, I'm a longtime fan, so great to meet you, Neil and Marsha, I'm a new fan and great to meet you as well. Thank
2: Excellent. You, you too, thank. It's you. Nice to meet you.: So we, when we come back, we're going to bring on Star Talk a correspondent can I call can I use that word? Star, Star Talk brain correspondent, Heather Berlin when Star Talk returns. <laughs>
0: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills.
5: There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that
0: exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash impact.
1: Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you.
4: Hi, I'm Chris Cohen from Haworth, New Jersey, and I support Star Talk on Patreon. Please enjoy this episode of Star Talk Radio with your and my favorite personal astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson.
2: We're back, Star Talk. We're talking about meditation. Coming off our first segment in a conversation with Dan Harris, ABC correspondent turned meditation guru Ooh, do i get to use that word Marcia? i think so yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah totally we can totally do that absolutely and as is the dna of star talk we bring in um, an academic expert on a subject matter that any of our um, pop culture representatives bring to the table and of course we have our neuroscientist at large heather berlin welcome back always a heather. pleasure
5: always a pleasure
2: yeah, yeah, and you're you're at the Icon School of Medicine. Yes, the right, Icon right?
5: School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Icon,
2: I mm-hmm. C A H N at Mount Sinai, and uh, you specialize in figuring out what the brain is doing, whether or not people know it. <laughs> I think <Hey. laughs> that's on your yes, business card, yes, isn't exactly. it? <laughs> that's my slogan. So yeah. let me just bring up some broad uh, questions here that uh, arose from that first mm-hmm. segment. So many people who have mental challenges, right? One of them, a big one, I, I, I'm told is, is anxiety, <laughs> but the, the <laughs> Marsha reads the back on that one. <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying. No, no, but there are others. There's trauma in life, for mm-hmm. example, possibly even PTSD. Uh, you can think of things that, a problem that a person can't shake. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as, as a, a, a clinical person, Is your first thought, yeah, there's a drug for that? Mm -hmm. Or at what point does someone say, there's a drug for that? Mm -hmm. And at what point does someone say, get to know your mind better? Maybe you can have mind over matter, Mm -hmm. mind over uh, a a, a properly behaving mind over the mind that's misfiring. Mm -hmm. So how how do you strike a balance between those two?
5: Yeah. I mean, often, you know, we start with the kinds of treatments that are non-medication-based treatments. Um, and then, yeah, yeah, for sure. And that would be, I mean, you know, forms, various forms of talk therapy, using oh, techniques. Therapy. Yeah. yeah, of yeah of, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. mindfulness-based stress reduction or, or meditation as part, it's integrated as part of therapy. Um, you know, because your thoughts you know, can change your brain, and that is a way to change your neurochemistry just via controlling your thoughts and and your emotions and how you respond to them. So um, we always we always do that first. Now, if people's neurochemical imbalance or neurocircuitry is in such a way that that is not enough, then we can supplement or augment that with medication, and then we find that there's a synergistic effect, so that the medication plus the mindfulness base or the talk therapies um, work together better than either one of them alone. So it's never just like, here's a pill now go off and, 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 you know, you'll be better. It's, it's always going to be a bit of both, but, but we start always with non-medical treatments and then sort of move up the ladder.
2: But wait, isn't a pill cheaper than therapy?
3: (laughs) So much. (laughs) Although it depends.
2: I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's, bad.
2: it's cheaper and faster yeah. than therapy. Yeah. I'm yeah. Well, no, no, but I, depends on no, the therapist. Yeah. If, if you know the neurochemistry, mm-hmm. the electrochemistry of, let's just, whoever defines it, I don't care, it doesn't matter, of a normal brain, okay? This is a brain that doesn't have uh, neurological issues that we have identified in textbooks. Mm-hmm. Is that the chemistry you're going to try to recreate in the mind of someone who has mental challenges?
5: So, first of all, there's no such thing really as a normal brain. Every brain is different. And now when we're talking about people at the extremes, yes, you know, people with extreme um, neurochemical imbalances or um, problems in their neuroanatomy. But outside of those extremes... Everybody is, has something basically everybody we're all wired differently. And so there's no one ideal place that we're trying to get a person to be at. So that's why psychiatry is, is an art more so even than a science, you know, it's not like we know, okay. It's not like you have this bacteria, take this antibiotic, you know, it is, Try this SSRI or a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and see if that has an effect. And then we sort of measure how is it affecting that person. And if it works, great. If not, okay, we'll try this drug or we'll try that. So there's no perfect. Um, and there's
2: also dosing too. The right? dosage, the matters. Yes, there, yes, yeah. Uh-huh. There's no,
5: there's no ideal state we're trying to get. It's just, it's really individualized medicine. What works for you based on your symptomology? You know, what kind of treatment do we think is going to be best for you? And so there's no ideal state. It's just, it's just what's good for you. So if you're a person who's an overthinker, you have a highly active prefrontal cortex and you're ruminating and you can't stop that inner voice, you know, giving you techniques to how to quiet it down, how to focus your attention is one way. If that doesn't help and you need something stronger, then we can help bring in certain drugs and see if that has an effect or not.
2: You know,
3: there's just no. What drugs are
2: those for overthinker types? That sounds horrible. They need help. So, so Heather, let me ask you a an awkward philosophical question.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: All right, and I I I come to you from the world of physics, and in physics, uh, we we physics has been around a long time. What I mean by that is there are things we've actually understood about the universe over many many centuries by the works, the hard work, and brilliance of key people who have been in our field. That is a much deeper history than psychiatry or psychology, right? When you think of sort of modern psychi- psychology, it's is it much more than a century old, really? I mean, maybe late 1800s? Whereas physics, we have authentic physics going back 500 years, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. So my my question is, could it be that neuroscience or or, or or a couch uh, you know uh, a couch therapy is something that needs breakthroughs of brilliant neuro people who haven't been born yet so that the day will come will you say you'll just analyze the neurochemistry and say here's what's wrong, fix it here, nip tuck, Oh, and you walk out the door and it's one session okay. in your office. Okay,
5: ready? This, I love this question. So first of all, I mean, psychology
2: arose. Well, I, I need buy-in on this. Marsha, are you with me on this? <laughs> I'm freaked this- out
3: because to me, it's like, because it's about the human brain, it can never be standardized in the way that physics is because humans are consciousness. Just like we were talking about in the first segment, it's about our consciousness. So I would never I want buy to go that. into tell you a doctor who I'm can scan my brain. Advocate. I'd be terrified they'd use it for evil.
2: <laughs> so no, here's why okay. There was a day we'd look up at the night sky. Oh, the moon is doing this and that, and that's different from what Mercury is doing, and that's different for and everybody's doing their thing in the sky. Yeah. And no one really understands it.
3: Exactly. And
2: so we're thinking, oh my gosh, well, we'll never understand it because we are mortal and that's the divine space of the heavens. And how can we ever understand divine space? I see
3: what you're saying and now, then, yes. Where we then, still have then a lot single of. single yeah.
2: formulas come forth and it brings it all together under one coherent understanding. So are we in this moment? declaring the brain is just complex and we can never do it, or are you admitting ignorance about where we relative to where we could be one day so that the person walks in, you put them in one of your machines that I know you got in the back room there in your home, and then goes boop and then everything is fixed. Ready? Like I said in yeah, his like, stop shop.
5: <laughs> okay.
2: Okay, go. Oh, I'll
5: tackle this in two minutes or less. Um yeah. psychology arose out of philosophy. Philosophy was the origins of psychology. But technically, if you really, you know, the the this the science of the mind, you know, maybe a century, a century and a half old, true. The the problem with the brain is. Subjectivity. So, I've always been interested in the brain because I want to understand the neural basis of consciousness. How does this physical piece of matter create subjective states? If I ask it's just you, it's the most
2: subjective thing there is in the world.
5: Exactly. So, if I ask you, are you depressed? I, you know, I can look at how you're acting, whatever, but I have to ask you on a scale of one to 10, how sad do you feel or how much pain are you in? Right. So, Until we can solve that problem of subjectivity, which is really what we want to work towards is having a unified theory of the neural basis of consciousness. And and we're working on that right now. Which you don't have yet. We do not have have that. We do not have an agreed upon theory of of consciousness. And
2: and Marcia, you know, the best evidence that they don't have it is that if you go to the the bookstore and you look for books on consciousness, they're shelf after shelf.
3: (laughs) And not just one. (laughs)
2: Not just one book. We figured it out. There's one book on gravity on the shelf and there's 50 books on consciousness. That means we know nothing about consciousness.
5: Whoever figures out how to harden consciousness. But
3: we're narrowing If you figure it out, though, don't tell anybody because I don't want the clones. I don't want the, I don't want it. I don't want it. Well, this is
5: the thing. The thing about consciousness is this first-person subjective experience. So the only one that can ever experience your consciousness is you, to know what it feels like to be you. But there are a couple of main contenders of, like one is this integrated information theory of consciousness. The other is the global neuronal workspace theory of consciousness. Some talk about predictive processing and coding. So there's a bunch of theories out there floating around, and we're actually engaged in a large-scale study right now across labs to test these Different theories against each other experimentally, which is very difficult to do in and of itself because of the problem of subject, subjectivity.
2: Um, but Also, could the concept of consciousness itself be malformed in how you even pose the question?
5: Well, yeah. So I once actually debated Deepak Chopra on this topic because he's he philosophizing that consciousness just exists in the universe. It's a fundamental property of the universe. And we are just subjects of that. We, it creates matter, right? Where I say no matter or me and my fellow neuroscientists matter creates subjectivity, creates consciousness. But there are some people with different philosophical views that say it exists in the universe and we're just like the conduits of it.
2: So, this is further evidence that nobody really knows anything. We,
0: okay. well, <laughs> but one person says,
2: the, the universe <laughs> exactly. gives it to you. And the other person says that you give it to the universe. Right. If that's what you're arguing about, you don't know anything. We're far okay. from,
5: but I do ultimately think that in the if we don't kill ourselves first as a human species, in, over the course of time, you know, theories will emerge and and we will get closer. Um, but because each brain is slightly different you would have to take each individual, map out their entire brain, understand their full history. Um, and also the brain isn't static. It's constantly changing. So where you were yesterday is different than where you are today.
2: Ooh, so it's a moving target. So Ooh, it's so yeah. many
5: variables involved that Ooh. it's really hard yeah, to pinpoint um, and to change it in a way that's going to suit your, it's going to change the person's behavior. However, the one thing we are getting closer with are neural implants where we can you know, make a rat move left or right, depending on how we direct it or make it eat or not eat. And so we can start to control human behavior, but- if we can control how you feel and think, you know, I mean, we'll eventually get there, I'm sure. Ah.
3: You know?
2: That's yeah, so just scary. Yeah, that's a little scary. I, I'm scared of that, Marsha. She said, oh well, my when, neural implants to control your behavior. Yes. Okay. Now, every
3: time I go left or right, I'm going to go, am I doing this? <laughs> Someone else making me.
5: <laughs> See, we so have these little quick... remote controls at home, uh, you know, and that's yeah. how we. Yeah, 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 5G yeah. yeah Marsha, you got a joystick
2: yeah. that, that, that Heather's got you going on that. <laughs> uh, we got to take sure a quick break. Is... When we come back, Heather, I want to hear from you about the, the uh, clinical studies and laboratory studies of what the brain is doing when it's meditating or when it's not meditating, or, or just what, what, what going inside the brain tells us about what's going on outside when Star Talk returns. <laughs>
0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash impact.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.
2: Back, Star talk segment three of meditation, and uh, we began with Dan Harris, who set us on this path. Uh, he's got a meditation app called Ten Percent Smarter. Is it, Marcia? Ten percent happier. Happier, ten percent happier. Yeah, no, we we really want one that makes us all ten percent smarter. All right, yeah. we got to work on that one. And we brought in Heather Berlin, our neuroscientist at large, to help make sense of all of this or neurological sense. Um, Heather, uh, all this talk about changes in people's behavior for whatever reason, be it meditation or drugs. Do you see that in brain scans or neural implants or whatever it is you do behind a curtain when nobody's looking?
5: Do we see changes in the brain after yes. meditation? Yeah. And amazingly so. So all these studies have been done, you know, they have people who never meditated before and then they have them meditate for eight weeks and then look at their brains, you know, before and after. And they also look at long-term meditators, you know, people have been practicing their whole life and you actually see an increase in gray matter. So normally the brain is aging right over time. And we're having a sort of a little bit of atrophy of gray matter. And they found that, meditators long-term meditators a 50 year old brain looks like what a 25 year old brain would
2: look like but remind me what gray matter does for us
5: gray matter is involved in all of our thinking our cognition um, planning organizing its particularly in the prefrontal cortex they see these changes so what's the point um, of the rest of making. your brain
2: you just listen uh, to everything I want my brain for so <laughs> what good is <laughs> the, the rest of the brain
3: useless. Yeah, well,
5: all sensory, it's all your sensory information. The subcortical areas are more of the emotional parts of your brain, your drives, your motivation, but they actually see changes in those areas too. So they have um, the amygdala involved in a fear response, your kind of fight or flight response, actually were smaller. And, the, and in the short-term meditators, the people who just did it for eight weeks, they looked at their amygdala activation in response to emotional pictures before meditating and then after, and they had less amygdala activation to pictures after they had meditated. So they had more emotional control. So increases in prefrontal cortex the gray matter means that they can you can regulate yourself, you can have more impulse control, control over emotions, um, and it actually you see these decreases in these subcortical areas. So it's both, you get these these activation changes and you get really structural changes in the brain with meditation over time. Okay,
2: so you have value judged in what you just said, you have value <laughs> judged those changes. Well, by- no, by- but
3: the amygdala is a huge part of anxiety, right? Because that's basically like your fight or flight is triggered, but there's nothing to run from. So like your outside's not matching your inside. And I've heard that meditation, yeah, like that's interesting because I've heard that meditation just helps calm that. Fight or flight. Instantly. Oh,
2: interesting, Marcia. So you're saying that sometimes we're reacting in a way that would have been sensible if T. Rex were chasing exactly. us,
3: exactly. Except,
2: and <laughs> yeah, that is not,
3: trauma that's anxiety. Like threat. you see that a lot. I had a job where I worked with Holocaust survivors, and their kids had even worse anxiety than them because they grow up with all this physical anxiety, but their experience outwardly is very safe. So it doesn't make sense. And then they've now done studies about that that kids. Of trauma and things like the Holocaust have these experiences with their brain chemistry, and it's just interesting hearing the science behind it because I've heard about the amygdala and stuff. And but Heather,
2: all right, so Mm -hmm. I'll I'll give you that. But how Mm -hmm. about any activity that someone does intensely for eight weeks? If I if I take up chess and I get really into chess, (laughs) or some, uh, 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 or some, uh, I don't know, martial arts. Does
3: that change the brain?
2: Yeah. Something that does. takes a lot of focus and intensity. So is, is is meditation unique in this regard or is it just anything you do with focus and intensity will also trigger or uh, um, instill change, permanent changes in the brain?
5: Absolutely. But it's the, it's the skill set that you're training because your brain habituates. It learns anything. So if you're doing something bad, like things that are related to addiction, you get into a negative, negative changes in the brain. But in this case, what you're learning with meditation is you're increasing activation in parts of the brain that have to do with um, your sort of what they call it, quieting your your sort of monkey mind, that inner chatter, that self-critic, Back to the monkey mind, the you know the kind of inner voice that's the inner critic that's telling you you're not doing well or all the negative thinking, and you're gaining more control over those negative thoughts. You're getting more control over. I mean, emotions are good to have, but not when they're being triggered for the wrong reasons, right? So what happens if you have a fast track to emotion where the amygdala gets activated, but then the, pre, the prefrontal cortex says, oh, wait, you know, this. there's nothing dangerous in this situation. You can calm down now. But if you don't have the right regulation to do that.
1: You, oh. then, so, then you're
2: a victim of your own neurochemistry
5: exactly but this way you're taking control in a way over your your brain it's like the brain controlling itself so with meditation you're you're becoming more aware of what's happening internally in your own mind and you're gaining more control so that you can enhance your positive experiences and help down regulate the negative ones and the thoughts you know, as you well. know
2: what I did once heather uh, mm-hmm. I was 17 and there was uh, a, a friend of our family a, a, a friend of my mother's who had a Son who's also 17, but I never I we played together when we were like three, but I didn't know him. And he died of brain cancer. Oh. Very tragic. And th- there was a funeral in River the chapel at Riverside Church, and they it was d- during a school day, and he, he he went to school in Westchester, but they took a bus of kids, brought them into Manhattan, and that and there's a picture of him on the casket. And and the organ is doing its organ thing, funeral organ thing. Everybody's crying, and I'm saying to myself, Uh-oh. I, "I swear this is my. Cro- I, I swear this is my. This is my. This is what I said to myself. I said, I do not know this person. Yet every force operating in the air right now wants me to cry over his death. The the, the you know." 15, 16-year-old kids helping each other walk down the aisle. And and he was a handsome kid, so there's this handsome photo of him. And I said, and and tears started welling up in my eyes, and I said, I'm only crying because everybody else is crying. I don't actually feel this Mm -hmm. at all. I said this to myself. And then I said, why don't I cry every day because thousands of people die every day in New York City for all kinds of reasons. I'm not crying then. Mm-hmm. So why should I cry now? So I those tears back up. And I, I still felt the moment, but I did not let the moment override emotions that I felt were artificially implanted in me. I did that when I was 17. I don't know if I should be proud of that moment. Uh, or- I cry at
3: State Farm commercials. Are you serious? No. Like- <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> 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 this is how different. When you
2: cry at the commercial where the woman sings with the the dogs. Oh, you know. the
3: most manipulative! Bring grandma in, and you haven't seen her in twenty years. I'll be sobbing. I'm like all of most these. Sons, they're they're trying to
2: manipulate me. And so Heather, I if are you saying that I did something good or did I do something? Um, there's, yeah, no,
3: there's no good
5: or bad. Mis-
2: misanthropic.
5: There's two, There's it's interesting. So there's w- what we put a value judgment, You know, one of, of which is if you can have the right kinds of emotional control, You know, be able to express your emotions at the appropriate time, but not express them when you're being manipulated to do so and whatnot. So in, in that sense, yes. You and i
2: tell you that organ was all in. <laughs> <laughs> but
3: there's a relief. You're supposed to cry at a funeral because there's a collective release with ritual, even if like it's not, it's like I feel like our culture is so shied away from death that that's why you're supposed to cry. But I also went to some funerals where some people I'm like you're doing this for attention, which is wrong. But yeah,
2: okay. <laughs> so I
3: think the emotional control can be a good thing. Um, over again, over
5: controlled, like you know, if you if you didn't cry, if it was the funeral of someone you did know and had a connection to, that'd be a little different. But the other aspect is, um, and what meditation also helps increase the brain areas involved in is empathy. So you can have an empathetic response. You can mm-hmm. like the boundary between self and other, it can dissolve and you can feel more connected with people. Um, so you can increase empathy, but at the same time have enough cognitive control to um control your emotions in the appropriate way. Right. Yeah, so
2: so I so I drew my line between tears dropping down my cheek. I said I mm-hmm. felt it. It was a very sad day. And so I it's so not that I didn't feel the sadness, mm-hmm. but I, I just could not—and, and, you know, I've been to some New Orleans funerals, right, mm-hmm. where there is a jazz band and there's, there's, there's a celebration. So I don't think it's writ in the sky that one must cry at a funeral. You can use that time to celebrate the person's life, however brief they were on earth.
5: But you know what you were exhibiting, which is really at that young age was this sort of meta-awareness. You know, you were making a decision about how you
2: were going to choose
5: to respond. I was a a
2: geek kid. I was a complete geek kid.
5: So there was this whole like parts of the brain modulating other parts of the brain. And that's what meditators do. I once did this um, experiment with this Shalin monk who could withstand an enormous amount of pain. And so we put him in the scanner and we put these these heaters on his wrists and we would just keep increasing the heat, heat to the point that he had burn marks on it. And he was just saying, I feel the pain. I feel the pain. I mean, look at his brain. Marcia, a-
2: this, is, this is the stuff Heather does. <laughs> <laughs> right, you thought I, I was joking? Yeah. The stuff going on behind that curtain?
3: And where are your offices located?
5: <laughs> friends this was in the UK. On. This was in the UK. Totally different rules there. <laughs> oh, different, yeah. different legislative oh, r- yeah. rules, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but when, when he was controlling this pain, you saw one part of his brain controlling the pain network in the brain. So he was literally using one part of his brain, this executive control to down regulate the pain network because pain doesn't happen in your arm. It happens in your brain. So if you can control one part of your brain with the other, you cannot experience pain. There are people who go through surgery without anesthesia by going into a meditative state. So it's just amazing how much, when I talk about this meta-awareness, how much control we can really have beyond what we even think is physiologically possible. We can control our own physiology.
2: I, I, I hate to confess then, I used to do that. I, well, I used to wrestle, and wrestle, there's a lot of things that are painful when you're wrestling. And I would say to myself, well, is is the skin broken and am I bleeding? no. Therefore, ignore it and keep going. They've shown
3: athletes, that's like, there was a really fascinating, like, sports science thing where about how athletes can play through a broken leg just by pure pain control and adrenaline and, like, the chemicals that come up where you can have a super bad injury and finish the game and then not feel the pain until afterwards, essentially. But then sometimes the pain is excruciating once they finally do feel it, but they'll say, I played for two hours on a broken leg, didn't feel a thing. As soon as the game was over, i you know, collapsed. Like, it's just amazing.
2: Yeah, so, but in my case, I would make the judgment whether it was just pain, that pain sensors were sending to my brain, or whether there's an actual physiological break that needed attention, right, Uh, medical attention. I'd, I'd make that distinction. And if it was just simply pain, no matter how severe, I would just ignore it and keep going. And, and And uh, so I I hope, Heather, that that doesn't mean I can't feel for people, right? Is that what you're telling me, that I'm just hard-hearted?
5: I think there are two different systems that are going on. One is this capacity to feel empathy, right, which is a whole neural network in and of itself, which you you can very well have. I don't know, I may have to run some tests on you, but, you know, I'll, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt for now. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, so that's one thing. So it doesn't necessarily correlate with how much cognitive control or you know control you have over your thoughts and over pain. So you can have a ton of cognitive or, or control or emotional regulation, and that doesn't necessarily relate to how empathetic or not you are. You know, when you they, the reason they get they get constri- they get sort of pushed together is because psychopaths tend to have an enormous amount of control and also don't have empathy. But but in and, and you know, non psychopathic humans—they um, don't have to be correlated.
2: You just use my name in the same sentence with the word psychopath. <laughs> just let, let the record show. <laughs> You're
3: the one talking about being at funerals, looking okay. at everybody cry.
2: <laughs> Guys, we got to land this plane, but this has been uh, highly enlightening and and introspective, uh, uncommon for what we normally do for Star Talk. So I'm glad to have you contribute to this, Heather. Thank you. This has been Star Talk, an episode on meditation and and mindfulness. I'm your host Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. Keep looking up.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Crispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.